Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, April 29th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give individual investment advice. This is for informational purposes only. Please do your own research and do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so, you know, I, as in the past, like to talk about Cameco when they have their earnings come out. Why? Because they're the 800-pound gorilla in the in the uranium market, and so uh, it's, you know, instructive to listen to what they have to say, not only about their business, but as they see the industry as a whole. And so I listened to the conference call. I didn't listen to the question and answer, but I listened to the conference call, the comments from management, and they're very bullish. Um, The results for the first quarter were very good, as I've put up the figures here, just select figures. And, uh, you know, I continue to maintain that uranium's in a bull market. Uh, the industry's in a bull market. Uh, secular, longer term, longer for long, uh, it'll have longer staying power and it'll be longer in duration. And then, you know, for the reasons that we've said before, and uh, I'm not going to rehash all of the reasons why, but uh, as you can see, you know, Cameco now is hitting its stride uh, as as contracts are getting signed, as brownfield projects are cranked back up. Again, I encourage you to listen to the conference call and uh, it'll give you, give you a better idea of what's going on. Now, this is a slide that I took off the first quarter 2023 Cameco slide deck and Market fundamentals, driving contracting interest, but not yet replacement rate. So again, we've seen these before. This is from Cameco, of course. Uh, their sources, UXC, Uranium Market Outlook. You see the requirements over the time periods going out to 2040. Uh, you see the U- U.S. requirements. You see the non-U.S. requirements. Um, and uh this is what's going to drive uh, basically utility uncovered uranium requirements are 2.2 billion pounds through 2040. Um, and then you have the supply outlook, which is juxtaposed over here on the right, where you have a structural primary and secondary supply gap uh, emerging uh, during this period. So um, you see that uh, whether you want to look at the demand high case or the demand base case, I don't see the dates here or the time frame. Um, I apologize for that. Uh, but regardless, we've seen this chart before. It's the same thing. We just don't have um, sufficient supply coming on to close the gap with the uncovered uranium requirements that are going to happen over the next 10 or 20 years. As we continue to see demand ramp up, uh, especially in the global east and south, uh, maybe not necessarily in Europe and the United States, which seem to be stagnant on this issue. Although we have seen in the U.S. 
plant extensions and things like that and the recent Vodal plant coming online. So uh, again, this is goes back to supply demand. So one other thing that I'll make some more commentary. This was on Twitter. This is Casper J, nuclear advocate. I, uh, I follow him on Twitter. He pointed something out that was in the uh, associated SEC documents that they submitted. It said Cameco bought only 400,000 pounds of U308 in Q1. This is on the, they had to go into the market and buy for their contracting requirements that they've committed to. And they expect to buy between 9 and 11 million pounds in all of 2023. That's a whole lot of buying ahead, putting a lot of pressure on the spot market. And you can see uh, the, uh, this is a chart from uh, the financial documents from Cameco. You can see purchases here, uh, 9 to 11 million pounds. This is their financial outlook for 2023. So they need to buy, they're suggesting they're going to buy 9 to 11 million pounds in the market to meet the requirements because quite frankly, they don't have enough ability to ramp up their mining sufficiently to cover their contracts. So, um, yeah, you can see uh, their, what they're forecasting. So the retort is, well, you're saying, John, that the uranium market, based on what Cameco and, and like Kaz Adam Promise saying that we're in a bull market based on their earnings that you're seeing there, but why are my juniors down 70 or 80% in some cases? Well, we've talked about this many times before. There's a difference between investing and speculating. There's only two, maybe three viable uranium companies that you can invest in. These are companies like Cameco that actually have revenue. Okay. They actually have earnings. They actually have cash flow. They can be analyzed as investments. And you can see that they're in the upswing. As I've said before, most of the things that people are holding, they don't want to buy Cameco because they're not interested in having, you know, a compounded 15 to 20% gain over the next five years. They want a 10,000, you know, they want a lottery ticket. And that's why they buy these junky juniors and that have no sales, that have no resources, that burn cash and constantly issue shares. And then they wonder in a environment where we're possibly in a bear market, or a market that has a contracting liquidity, um, they wonder why the stocks go down. Inevitably, we will have a, you know, blow up on the upside on even the junkie juniors. But I don't know when that's going to happen. Right now, until liquidity changes, I wouldn't really be adding to any of those positions. Um, there's, what's the catalyst? There's, you need a speculative juices flowing you need uh something like that you would need to see you know a wave of liquidity come behind you would need to see maybe something to kick it off like a um beginning of a mergers and acquisition spree something to draw attention to the junkie juniors uh because right now with liquidity draining out of the system and we'll show that later on in subsequent slides uh this is you know, in a bear market, most stocks go down. And I believe that, you know, we're going to be in a bear market. We are in a bear market and we're going to continue to be in a bear market. 
until liquidity reverses to the upside. And right now we are in a deflationary um, environment where liquidity is contracting. So there's no impetus for these stocks to go higher. Even Cameco will have a hard time, you know, stock going higher. So you have to make the distinction, as I've said many, many times before, between um, an investment and a speculation, okay? Uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, if you look across the desert to the promised land, we'll get there one day, but I don't know if that's a year, 18 months, two years, three years. It's impossible to know. So just keep that in mind, right? Because we, that's the feedback we get. We say, well, you're talking positively about, you know, uranium and nuclear power and Cameco had these great earnings, but what about, you know, again, I'm, I'm losing money in this. Well, you know, in a market of stocks, most stocks go down in a bull market. I, we've said that that's, historical norm it's very hard to buck that uh, as liquidity and, and sediment is negative and then remember in the short and medium term liquidity and sediment is what drives stock prices and here's here's a major problem you know here's your true money supply i'll make a link to a guy I follow his blog steve seville uh, he put this up here you can see the same thing uh, if you go to the fred uh st louis fred you can get the same data this isn't like made up or anything it basically comes off the st louis fred website this is basically showing you the year year over year change in the true money supply and you see that during the pandemic uh when things were juiced you know we had you know 39 percent monetary growth and so that was what led to your inflation breaking out was heavy contribute to it at least and so now we're reversing that, right? We're deflating, we're, de we're in a deflationary environment. You haven't seen, this is year over year money supply, true money supply changing by negative 10%. Do you know when the last time you had a negative number like this? It was during the depression in the 1930s. Does that mean I'm suggesting we're gonna have a depression? No, what I'm saying is that this is a classic example of what we've talked about before of reversion to the mean. And so when you have a reversion to the mean after this huge anomaly, you don't necessarily go back to, you know, the average of 6% or whatever it was, you know, historically uh, for true money supply growth, year over year change, you exceed the median or the average, whatever you want to call, whatever you want to say it, and you usually overshoot. And so, this is why I say we're in a bear market. This is why I say things are going to break. Uh, this is why I say be defensive right now because we don't know the repercussions of this. Again, the last time we saw something like this was during the Great Depression in the 30s. You know, so we've already seen another bank go belly up on Friday. Uh, so again, things continue to crack. In the in the markets and in the in the system, okay, because the, the current way that our system is set up, debt based, it cannot function with interest rates where they're at for a long period of time. So that's why things are starting to break now. And so this is another reason why there's really no reason if Jerome Powell's going to you know keep rates higher for longer to do anything except for sit into T bills and just wait. Okay, there's no reason to try to swim upstream or get cute. Can some people that are a little bit more aggressive try to time it and maybe buy some longer term bonds to try to get uh, treasuries like, you know, five, 10 or 10 years or something like this to try to get a capital gain? Yes, but again, you're timing the market. You don't know, 
you know, what's going to happen. I think inevitably you're good on those, but I th I'd rather just sit here and get, you know, four to 5% uh, on T-bills, uh, just sit in a money market fund and get my clip coupons and wait for these monetary aggregates to, you know, flip and be a pushing me instead of opposing me. So, uh, you know, this is, nobody's paying attention to this and it doesn't appear to be reversing. So <laughs> this is going to be a problem as this was a problem on the upside with inflation. This is, you know, again, the Fed is trying to drive this car by looking in rear view mirrors and they still are fighting the last battle, uh, which is inflation. And that's not really the problem. At least in my view. Again, here's from the Fred website. Uh, this is bank credit, all commercial banks. You see that uh, this is a year over year change. It's contracting massively. Uh, we've heard, you know, there's more data that I could put up showing that uh, lending standards are tightening at banks. Again, it's a sediment reaction. Uh, as banks are failing and deposits are fleeing, all this stuff swirling around, um, banks are not in the mood to make loans, okay? And in case you didn't know this, most people don't know this, most of the credit creation doesn't, doesn't happen by the Federal Reserve, okay, or the Treasury. It happens by commercial banks because they're a fractional reserve banking system that we have. They can loan out more money than they have in deposits, okay? And then they're backstopped by the Federal Reserve. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but suffice to say, with bank credit contracting, and true money supply and money supply contracting, what, you know, and, and with the view that I have that in the short and medium term, sediment and liquidity drives markets, you have negative sediment, bearish sediment, people anticipating recession, bank credit, I mean, indicators, we've, you know, we've now have 12 months of the conference board leading economic indicators being negative, okay? I mean, it's like you're standing, you're sitting on a pile of dynamite and the fuse is lit, but you don't know how long the fuse is, okay? At some point, it's going to blow. Something's going to blow. So um, we'll see. Uh, again, uh, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm just looking at probabilities and trying to, like, pattern recognition. You know, this is the, you can go back as long as you want on these charts, but you can see this is not, <clears throat> is this a chart you'd be buying or selling? That's kind of how I break these things down in my mind. This is not a chart I would want to be buying. It's a falling safe. Is it going to bottom here, here, here? Is it going to go negative? I don't know. Likely it will go negative. It's not positive for the economy. It's not positive for liquidity. So, um, you know, I, all my reading and searching for items for the weekly market update, I came upon these uh, charts, which I thought are good to remind. I'm not necessarily saying these are actionable, but this is kind of ties back into why I'm bullish on gold, why I advocate people that have enough, you know, if you only have a thousand dollars and you're just starting out, I mean, this isn't for you, but if you have some wealth, you know, as you would have house insurance, fire insurance on your house, flooding insurance, why you would have car insurance, whatever. That's what I think gold does. It protects you 
uh, again, against central bank and government uh, malfeasance. And this is malfeasance, okay, what we're seeing here. Um, we are in the terminal stages of the U.S. empire. You know, I saw a, I'll put a link to it in the um, show notes. There's this guy I follow, I think he lives up in Austin. He's kind of like an entrepreneur. He buys businesses or starts businesses. I think his name's Mike Gurgley. I enjoy following his Twitter feed. He actually had a really good Twitter multi-tweet thread, if you will, talking about all of how many advantages the United States has. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about natural, the port system, the Mississippi River transportation system, all these things that we have, this huge advantage that's really uh, been a con ma major contributing factor to making the U.S. successful, okay? And I thought it was eye-opening. And uh, I'll put a link to it because I think it's interesting. But even with all the advantages we have, my view is we're squandering it. We're squandering our advantages. We're squandering the things that gave us the ability to uh, succeed. And uh, one of the things that we are doing that has crippled every other great power throughout history is look at our debt. I mean, this just goes back to like 1973, right? And, you know, we've talked about if you've if you've been watching me for me for a while, you know that I'm a big fan of like showing these charts when something like a stock during a bubblicious time, like during the internet bubble, or the great financial crisis when a stock or some type of graph uh, something financial like this goes parabolic that inevitably it doesn't continue going parabolic. It eventually reaches, reaches its apogee. Uh, it continues until it can't continue anymore. And then you have a massive crash. Okay. Now I'm not suggesting the same thing will happen with the debt, but this is unbelievable. The only reason we're able to do this is because we have the reserve currency. We have the ability you know, we still have these advantages and we still can draw capital here, but we're squandering that advantage. This has been the major reason why throughout history, why major powers have lost their advantage and then recede into history as, as somebody else emerges. And that's what's happening with the U.S. Even though we have all of these great advantages, this thing is like a self-imposed, it's like cutting off my leg, your own leg before you run a marathon. Why would you do that? And so, you know, again, I don't say this because I'm an activist or I want to get you riled up and get clicks. Look, this isn't going to be fixed, okay? This can be fixed, theoretically. You know, we can cut the budget. We can do all these things, but they're not politically possible. The things that are required to fix this are, are not politically possible, okay, in the current environment. And the things that are politically possible won't fix this so at some point this is going to be a problem okay and it's going to lead to major economic political and social upheaval in this country i'm not saying it's in the next week i'm not saying it's in the next year but it will lead to that okay as it has throughout history with every other great power that ended up becoming over indebted now if you look at the right you see the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar since 1792 to 2021, okay? I mean, th these, these are the facts and they're not in dispute. And so when I say you need to own gold, you need to insure yourself because like I said, you don't know if this will happen. If this, you know, these things kind of go the way of the quote that people like to use from the Hemingway book about the man that went broke, right? When 
his friend asked him, why did you, how did you go broke? He said, slowly and then all at once. That's how these things happen. Everything seems fine. There's a recency bias. Well, yesterday was fine. So today's fine and today's fine. So tomorrow will be fine. And that's, you know, fine. That'll work until it doesn't work. And so this is why you need to own gold to protect yourself because this is not going to be fixed politically. You're going to have a massive crisis that forces a fix, okay? So um, this is why you need to own precious metals in my view. Some people would argue, you know, Bitcoin, that what, whatever you wanna do, I'm not, you know, I have a different view on some things. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I have some speculative positions and some Bitcoin miners. Uh, I've said that before. They're not large positions, but they've done well this year. Uh, but you need to do something, right? Because if you have wealth and you just have it all in the U.S. dollar, you see what's happening. And you see that this is happening at an accelerating rate, and this is happening at an accelerating rate. And so as Ray Dalio said, when he, which I've quoted him many times and shown the video clip where he had talked about this, when he said, talked about gold, talked about it being a competing currency, talked about it being insurance against these things. And everybody in the crowd laughed, you know, financial, whoever he was talking to that were well-heeled people or people in the financial community, they started chuckling and snickering. You know, he didn't get mad. He said, well, you know, if you, if you don't own gold, then you're just ignorant of history. And I agree with that. So that's, you know, throughout history, We've seen that these governments are not going to, um, you know, put any pain on the on on the on the on the voters. They're going to try to kick the can down the road, blame other people, and then when they're actually forced to deal with the problem, inevitably it leads to uh, currency debasement, which already we've seen a massive amount of it, right? And you're going to see a lot more. You know, your future in the United States is going to be one of um, currency depreciation, inflation, higher taxes, more regulation, more oppression, because they have no choice. Otherwise, the whole thing's going to come apart at the seams, okay? The underlying problems that have not been dealt with for 50 or 60 years are, if they're not, if they don't hold, try to physically hold that top on that pressure cooker are going to blow. That's my view, even with all of the inherent advantages. And so I don't know what comes from that inevitably. I'm not here to speculate this. I just like to reiterate these things and talk about why I think it's important to have some something that at least we know throughout history of 5,000 years of civilization has protected people against previous this is not the first time this has happened. This has happened many, many times throughout history. Whether you want to say Greece, Rome, Byzantines, whatever you want to say, you know, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, the UK, they all went through this when they had, you know, power and they had the, uh, they had the uh, mantle of being the reserve currency or whatever. It all ends the same way because human nature doesn't change. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. So... Anyways, I thought this was, uh, this should shock people. It's, you know, and what's funny is I'm watching this. I was listening to a podcast the other day. I don't know if this is true or not. I didn't get the quote from like the defense department, but I think it was mentioned in a podcast that General Milley said that, you know, or one of the people, generals there, 
you know, if, if, if Russia is successful in Ukraine, we'll have to double, the United States would have to double its defense budget to counter that. Really? <laughs> right? Structural trillion dollar plus deficits. We have 30 something trillion dollars in debt. We have an already close to a trillion dollar defense budget that's on the books, not counting what's off the books, and you would double that? I mean, this is just nonsensical that somebody, and these are highly educated people. This is people that go to our service academies, advanced degrees, and somebody to make, that's clown world type stuff to say something like that. We are, you know, forget about the defense budget. What about the entitlements that are just going to completely destroy the United States government's budgets and the Treasury Department. I mean, anyway, I'll get off that. I wrote an article about five or six years about that, that Social Security and Medicare would lead to the political dissolution of the United States. Uh, people thought that was provocative, but, you know, math is math. So, again, I like to show another chart about gold. This is from Jesse Felder. I think you should follow him on Twitter. He puts out a lot of good stuff. He also has a good blog, and he puts out, like, a weekly uh, email you can sign up for with all kinds of good charts and things like this. But anyways, quote here, the amount of gold bought by central banks rose by 152% year-on-year in 2022 to 1,136 tons, the highest level on record. Now, we've talked about this before, why they're doing that. Um, a lot of this binds coming from the global east and south uh, because um, the perception that they now have of the United States as being a very aggressive state, they don't want to end up, if you get crosswise with the United States, they don't want to end up having all their assets seized. So why hold things in the U.S.? Slowly diversify. Again, as Ray Dalio said, protect yourself from government malfeasance. Whether you agree with it or not, um, that's how people perceive the United States now. And that's what they're doing. What they've done throughout history is diverse. Why buy U.S. Treasury, bill, Treasury securities, which is what a lot of people used to do. Let me put some portion in gold. And this isn't even like scratching the surface. So uh, if this continues, which I suggest it more than likely will, then this will be another positive catalyst uh, for the gold price going forward. So this was a uh, some snippets from a Goring and Rosenzweig blog. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, it's talking about the Inflation Reduction Act's malinvestment of trillions. And what I thought was interesting, you know, I haven't read the entire Inflation Reduction Act, but I am aware of some of the provisions, which almost make it like open-ended. Okay, and so let's just get into a couple of these snippets. It says. An investment tax credit ref refunds up to 50% of the capital costs of wind and solar and power, wind and solar power. This tax credit is in effect until 2032 or until the U.S. reduces its carbon emissions from electricity by 75%. A Herculean goal that guarantees the subsidies will persist for decades. So, uh, yeah, we can't afford that. But Again, people respond to incentives. That's why you're seeing such a bull. That's why you're seeing, I mean, if you go on LinkedIn, I mean, I'm in this industry. I get called every single day. I have my LinkedIn turned off. I'm not looking for, a, you know, any kind of new business or new work in this industry. I get called every day. 
every single day. Okay, do you want to be the director of construction? Do you want the? Do you want to be involved in this pro? I no, I don't want to be involved. Okay, I got my own little niche that I do. I'm happy with, uh, you know, and I don't even have like they have this thing on LinkedIn. You can turn it on that says open for work. If you turn that thing on, I'll get. I had that on. I didn't realize it, uh, and I was getting like literally 10, 10 to twenty calls and emails a week. I was like, why are all these people calling me? You know, they just search through, you know, they data mine, you know, keywords in LinkedIn. There's so many people trying to build this out because there's so much money out there, right? There's such a slop bucket of free money. I mean, people respond to incentives. You know, I used the Rick Rule quote when he was talking about, you know, when they had a big, this is maybe 10 or 15, maybe even 15 years ago, maybe even close to 20 years ago, they had some, you know, the original push for renewables. They had the original tax credits. And one of the things that they got involved with in Vancouver, there were several companies that were brought to market that did um, geothermal projects, right? And so I remember somebody <clears throat> at an investment conference asking Mr. Rule the question, well, you know, based on your philosophical views, you're supposed to be this free market guy, and, you know, why are you involved with these companies that are accepting subsidies? And he said, listen, you know, I'm in business to make money here, basically. I'm paraphrasing. But I do remember this quote. It's pretty, pretty close to what he said, which was, and he says in front of a whole group of people, I thought it was, you know, very honest and interesting. But it shows you about the incentives. He said, if somebody is going to give me 30% of my capital for a project for free, i.e. the government, Yes, I'm against it philosophically and politically, uh, but it stimulates every fiber of my greed. And now you're up to tax credit refunds of up to 50% of the capital costs. So this is why you have so much capital flowing in. And it's the opinion of, you know, people like Gorin and Rosenzweig that did this research. You can read the blog and understand their argument that this is tremendous malinvestment. Let's go to the next uh, snippet. The tax credit is uncapped. If power producers install new renewable capacity faster than expected, the impact of the act will be more significant than budgeted. Yes, because it's open-ended and you have to, the goals are, you know, nine years off plus, you know, redu or reducing carbon emissions from electricity by 75%. That's not going to happen, first of all. Uh, you're not going to reduce carbon emissions uh, from electricity by 75% by 2032. And so it's going to be free money. There's so many projects happening right now, you wouldn't believe it. And there's not enough people. There's not enough equipment. There's not enough supply uh, to do all this. So it's a malinvestment boom. Plus, you get a protection, production tax credit of 2.6 cents per kilowatt hour, which actually skews the um, generation base, right? That's one of the issues they had, like in a state like Illinois, because of the wind, because of the subsidies, you were having to derate nuclear power plants because wind actually could outcompete it because it had these production tax credits, right? And so if a nuclear plant tried to, you know, that was part of the problem. So then what does the government do? They don't look at this and say, well, you know, 
maybe we should just focus on nuclear, they say, okay, now we have to come up with subsidies for nuclear. And so it's a never ending compounding malinvestment, you know, crap show that just raises costs for the consumer and doesn't actually lead to the, what they outcomes that they want to do, which is to lower emissions. But a lot of people get wealthy. And sometimes I think, or most of the time I think, that's really the real reason for this. Um, it goes on in the article. This is what I thought was interesting. This is where I think a lot of the good meat is here. But let me talk about these snippets. Says, um, he's talking about, Adam Rosenzweig here is talking about why there's a perception of the fact that renewables have gotten cheaper over time. And he explains why that is. Said many analysts quickly point out that the cost of wind and solar have fallen by 80 to 90% over the past decade. They argue that these massive cost reductions are evidence of a sharp, quote, learning curve. As the industry installs more renewable power, they claim efficiencies grow and costs fall. According to this logic, government should heavily subsidize early renewable capacity to reduce costs and fast track adoption. So that's the perception. That's what's sold. Um, you know, when we first started this, the technology's just gotten better. It's it's kind of that almost Moore's law thing that the cost of these things goes down over time, uh, like any product would as you as you make more of these. You know, and there's a certain amount of that, but that's not the main reason that the cost went down eighty or ninety percent. Next uh, snippet. Over the past decade, most of the cost savings have come from cheap capital. Remember, we had 0% interest rates for the last 10 years until the last year. And energy costs, which were very low, and not dramatically improved manufacturing efficiency. The 2010s were unique for two reasons. Most primary energy sources fell by 90% from peak to trough, and the cost of capital turned negative for the first time in human history. Renewables are much more energy and capital intensive than coal and natural gas fired generation. Is it any wonder their costs fell dramatically over the same period? And so you're again operating from a faulty premise. The premise by policymakers or what they've decided to use as their understanding is that, well, because of the investments we made early on and we reached scale on these things, the cost went down, and that's why the levelized cost of energy is lower with renewables. Well, they don't include, you know, uh, the intermittency of that, but that's another discussion. And so, ergo, we should do more because if we do more, the cost will go down even further. And this is just like this, you know, self-licking ice cream cone that will take us to nirvana. It's not true. All the things that were in the wind in the sails for this industry, low cost of capital, low commodity prices, uh, those are reversing now. And uh, it will make it much more difficult. We've actually seen, if we've shown by the earnings of recently of General Electric's uh, renewable division, Siemens Gamesa, uh, Vestas, they've all taken huge hits in their wind because, okay, now that commodity prices are reversing and are up, uh, you know, they have major losses. And a lot of it was also because these things are getting so large now. That was another thing. Let's make them bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, they're having more O&M costs now and more warranty costs. So we're reaching the limits. 
Well, don't even get me into solar. The whole thing's premised on manufacturing in China. I mean, everything comes from China, everything. There's a lot of the development and engineering. These are higher value things are done, you know, in the Europe, in the U.S., but ultimately you have to have, you're not going to build these things in a unionized factory in Ohio and be competitive. It's not going to happen unless you have massive subsidies, you know? And so what happens is you offshore the manufacturing, it's put together with semi-skilled labor uh, for like a year. And then you have, you know, three guys operating it, you know? So what's the real economic bonus? Uh, so this will continue until it doesn't, can't continue any longer. And uh, that's what will happen. And so that's why we have the mission statement at the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter of heads we win, tails we win more. You know, um, fossil fuels aren't going away. You need diesel and other fossil fuels to have this energy transition. That's ignored also. We haven't invested into that sufficiently. So we're going to make money on that. We have and will continue to. And as government policy, at least in the West, is to have this slam this energy transition down everybody's throat in one or two election cycles, uh, that requires a lot of mining to be done for the critical for the elements, the materials that need to go into making these things, which aren't sufficient to to enable this. So um, we're going. So that's where we get the tails we win more so i'll put a link to this you can read it uh, again people some people have different views they can have the view they want that's my view uh, i think it's uh the correct view notwithstanding the tightening liquidity that may lead to a recession in the short term you know we may see these prices of commodities come down just because of the overall economy but you know looking over the next 10 years or so we're going to have substantially higher commodity prices if we continue down this path. Here's one of the reasons. Here's a, a chart from Tavi Costa, Crestcat Capital. Please follow him on Twitter. They also have YouTube videos that are good about once every two weeks. They're like hour and a half, two hour videos. They talk about all this kind of stuff. Very informative. Anyway, Chilean copper production is now the lowest in 18 years. You know, Chile is the basically Saudi Arabia of copper. I think they produce close to 30% of the world's copper. And you see that copper production is has been in decline uh, over the last several years. Um, and you're back to levels of 2004, basically 18 years ago. So somebody will say, well, it's only dropped from 5.9 million tons to 5. 4 million tons, that's only like maybe a little less than 10%. Yes, but in order to have the energy transmission transition, as I've stated many times, and as other people have pointed out, we need to like double or triple our copper production over the next 10 years. And when we have the largest supplier in the world actually declining, seeing declining production, how do you get there? So you need massive, you know, massive investment you know chile has you know a current government that is not very uh friendly towards um they have a left-wing government okay so as a matter of fact they're trying to i think i have another slide about this coming up trying to nationalize their lithium industry because they have some of the largest lithium reserves if not the most 
uh, in the world. And so they're attempting to nationalize that. And that certainly won't be productive for, you know, substantially increasing the lithium supply to enable batteries. Uh, wanted to point this out. You know, this is a pretty good chart. It says Russian oil exports show no sign of tailing off. This is basically during the, you know, back to at least the first of part of 2023. This is another reason why there's been some, pre you know, the oil price hasn't really responded like we wanted, we thought it would. You know, a lot of people in our models we put in that we would see because of sanctions and other things, just the lack of uh, ability to maintain production by Russia. But that's not been the case, right? They are maintaining production. And it kind of, you see who's buying it, mostly India, China, you know, and un unknown Asia, you know, who knows who that is. But um, uh, again, you know, the sanctions regimes failed, basically. Uh, this is, you know, yes, they have to sell at discounted rates. Uh, they're forced into that, but the volumes are still there, right? And so I don't know if this maintains. I don't know if they'll be able to maintain this. I don't know if the powers that be, the masters of the universe, are going to sanction it. You know, it's funny, Seymour Hirsch had another article this week, uh, got picked up. Well, I think it was an interview. He was on YouTube. And he was just pointing out that the corruption in Ukraine, which, you know, all of the uh, fanboys of Ukraine say there's no corruption there. And, it's, you know, but, you know, you still have oil and gas going through the pipeline system. So Russia's still paying transit fees to Ukraine. Okay. Nobody's cut those supplies off, you know, to try to punish Russia. And there's, you know, allegations also, um, which are not substantiated, but uh, fully, uh, but that, you know, even you have Ukrainian uh, business people through third parties buying Russian diesel that's being used to fuel Ukrainian tanks and armored personnel carriers. So the whole thing's convoluted. Uh, you know, this is this is not the people in the West are not serious people. Uh, that's going off on a tangent. But suffice to say, for our oil price thesis, you know, uh, part of it was that we would see Russian oil production go down, you know, maybe a million barrels a day uh, into this year to, uh, you know, but we're not seeing that right now. So we'll have to wait. You know, they've agreed supposedly as part of the OPEC plus cuts that are supposed to happen in May. They were supposed to have already cut like 600,000 barrels and maintain those cuts. We're not seeing that because they're in a war, right? They need revenue. So they're going to, this is one of their major uh sources of revenue so uh, we'll see if this continues but i thought that's this was interesting from several perspectives okay here's the article uh i'll try to put a link to this i think i have a link to this um but uh chile to nationalize lithium industry it says while chile's plan to take control of its lithium industry has caused global shockwaves state-led production of the metal used to make electric vehicle batteries is seen by analysts as likely years away given technical and political challenges president gabriel boric last week said he would move to gradually nationalize the country's lithium industry which holds the world's largest reserves of the metal in a bid to boost chile's economy Chile's divided Congress, for example, has already stonewalled much of Bork's progressive agenda, and the government would need support from opposition parties, which it probably won't get. What I would say, though, is this type of discussion, this type of rhetoric, this type of 
I mean, you already have companies like Albemarle and SQM operating there. Uh, Albemarle already said, we don't, you're not nationalizing our mines. Um, so we'll see what happens. You know, that pesky little thing that the leftists like democracy so much is kind of getting in the way of the agenda. There's an actual Congress there and an opposition party that actually is able to stop some of this agenda. But what the bottom line is, is if you were SQM or Albemarle, would you be more apt to want to put increased production of lithium in the place that has the largest lithium reserves? And we need the lithium for the batteries, for the battery you know, uh, supposedly renewables coupled with battery storage are supposed to be the nirvana of the energy transition. But yet no one's going to invest in a country where you have the leader of the country uh, talking about nationalizing an industry. OK, the investment won't come. And so if you read the article, you know, these things, what I'm trying to tell you is. This is kind of indicative of what we've talked about over time, resource nationalism by countries countries wanting to control their own national interests, their resources get maximum value. And these things are going to be things that are roadblocks towards the energy transition. You need a massive push of mineral supply that has never been seen before in world history to have this transition. We're not seeing it. This is another example. You don't need to be nationalizing. You need to be doubling, tripling, quadrupling the production. You need to be encouraging these companies to bring capital in, to explode the production of lithium. And that's not happening. And so, you know, if you're going to talk about nationalizing, companies are going to kind of sit back and say, okay, let's just clip the coupons with the stuff that we have, uh, work with our legislators in the, in the Congress that uh, are on our payroll to oppose this. Hopefully this guy goes away in a couple of years and we can get somebody in here we can play ball with. That's how things really work. And that's not going to be conducive to supplying the requisite lithium and copper that we need for the energy transition. Ergo, prices are going substantially higher if we maintain uh, on the path of the energy transition. came upon this picture. I don't know exactly what it was taken where, but I've seen this before in West Texas. I don't know this, you know, the rhetoric or what I've seen is uh, don't worry, we're going to recycle all of these into these different products. Uh, but what this is what ends up happening with the used blades, you know, more than likely this was, these blades were on a first generation project. They probably did a repower replace the nacelle, bigger blades, whatever, and you got to get rid of these blades. So what are you going to do with them, right? So you just dig a hole in the ground, stick them in there. Um, I know, you know, I don't follow recycling technologies. Maybe there's a way to recycle them. But if you look at this, if you're an environmentalist, or if you're a conservationist, if you're an advocate for massively expanding renewable energy, how is this ecologically sound if this is really the way we're getting rid of these things? Now, if there's something I'm not aware of, I'm happy to hear about all the recycled products that we have from all of this waste. But again, even with solar waste, we're looking at uh, over the next 20 years, 40 to 50 million tons of used solar panels that you have to do something with. And uh, again, the amount of minerals that and the way that they're built are so small per panel it's almost currently with current technology as far as i'm aware not worth recycling so you end up doing what burying these things in a landfill i mean i don't know guys uh but we're going to continue again if somebody knows like the emerging technology that to recycle this stuff into a profitable 
buy products that are useful, I'm happy to hear about it because I'd be interested in that might be, that's probably going to be an excellent um, investment theme. For example, um, it's a too expensive stock, but look at a company like Waste Management. You know, these landfills that they fill up with the garbage, that stuff breaks down over time and creates methane. And so what they've done, they're massively, I looked at a slide deck of theirs recently. I mean, I wouldn't buy the stock at this level. It's overpriced, but they have this massive expansion to go on to capture that energy, okay, instead of just releasing the methane to the atmosphere to burn it off in turbines or process the impurities out and put it in a pipeline. Uh, that's profitable. That's taking a waste stream and turning it into a profitable byproduct. Not only that, it limits the amount of methane into the atmosphere. Yes, I'm definitely interested in hearing about things like that. Same thing with this. So if somebody knows of some viable, not some pie in the sky or wherever at MIT they did an experiment, somebody that's actually got a business that's grinding these things up and turning it into something that they sell for a profit, I'm interested in hearing about it. So I think this is the last slide. Yeah. So this is your clown world uh, thing for the for the week. Um, this was an article, I think it was in the Telegraph. This is from the UK. Um, this was an official from the Bank of England. He's the chief economist. Hugh Pill is his name. And uh, basically, I put the slide here. I'm trying to be provocative, obviously. Um, I don't know this guy. And I might be he might be being taken out of context, but this is what he said. I put on the slide here, title, You Must Accept Your Poverty. So the snippets from the article. British families must, quote, accept that they are worse off, unquote, after a surge in inflation and stop pushing for a pay rise, a senior Bank of England official has said. Hugh Pill, the bank's chief economist, warned that rising prices have made the whole country poor and said that attempts to bid up wages were merely prolonging the agony. Speaking in an interview on the Beyond Unprecedented podcast by Columbia Law School in New York, Mr. Pill said, quote, People need to accept that they're worse off and stop trying to maintain their real spending power by bidding up prices, whether through higher wages or passing the energy costs through onto consumers, unquote. So this is what it is, right? This is, uh, you know, I'm no Marxist-Leninist, but I am sympathetic to, to labor. I was on tools. I worked, I have worked as an hourly worker, okay? I have been a blue-collar worker. I have been an entrepreneur. I have been a businessman. I have been in senior management okay and this is what this is how the ruling class looks at the working classes okay you finally now are seeing increasing wages you see uh disparity in the supply of labor the quality of labor so it gives advantage to some people to finally start making some hay while the sun shines even though we've seen wages not increase for most people for decades and the first thing they want to do is tell you, you must, no, 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 no. You must accept your poverty. You must not ask for wage increases. You must not, because we need, you know, capital has a claim on all that exit, uh, on that advantage, not you. And so, again, this is how they view you, okay? You're just, no one cares what you think, uh, the average person. You can vote all you want. You can participate in democracy. I'd say that with italics you can fart around and waste time you know worrying about i mean for example you i'll give you an example you know i've listened to robert kennedy jr i'm 
like his vaccination stuff that he talks about and the fact that he sued these pharmaceutical companies and the fact that he's been on a podcast and he said that, you know, uh, these news, these news companies, 70, you know, I don't know if the, it's right exact number, but it's probably pretty close from what I've shown also that 75% of their revenue comes for advertisements from drug companies. So the news, so such that it is the propaganda, the state controlled media, the pharmaceutical controlled media is not going to be critical of the, of, 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 of any of this because, you know, that's their, that, the you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune and he wants to end that, you know? And so do you think that, you know, Mr. Biden, the husk of the man and his handlers, you know, they rigged the, they, they're going to rig the primary. There's not going to be any debates in the primaries. Okay. They're not going to put a senile old man up there with a guy that's an attorney uh, and a Kennedy to boot who has the sympathy and people still have nostalgia for the Kennedys, the son of Robert Kennedy, who was assassinated. And he's going to stand up there and ask all these questions of Mr. Biden that he can't answer. And so there's not going to be any debates in the Democrat. So it's rigged. Okay. It's rigged. It was rigged. It's always been rigged. Okay. I have no confidence. You're not going to fix any of these problems by voting. It's just a waste of time. Okay. I used to be involved in politics I don't even like talking about it that much. It is what it is, okay? Uh, that shows you right there, for example, okay? So, you know, uh, maybe he can overcome that through alternative media. Maybe people are so sick of it, but they have the superdelegate system in the, the DNC. You, even if you do get traction, they still won't allow it. I mean, it's just... And most people don't understand this, these things, okay? This is, these people are not here to make your life better, to come uh, kiss your life and make it better. I mean, I thought, saw it on Twitter. I don't know if the facts are true. I have to look it up in an open source or something. But Miss Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic Socialist, they had her assets and her, you know, she's a multimillionaire already. She's only been in Congress a couple few years. Where, how did she become a millionaire on $175,000 a year salary? I mean, these people are not there for you. They're there for themselves. And so if you're putting your faith in these people to come and kiss your life and make it better, you're just a fool. You're a fool. And so these people, it's a rigged system. It's rigged against the average person. They don't care what you think. They don't care what you say. And they're going to do everything to advantage themselves. And so, again, you're not going to fix this with voting. I'm not going to suggest how it gets fixed. You should look, read history. You can see when real change happens, it's usually not nice for anyone. So on that happy note, I will end. Uh, that's my view. Uh, you can dispute it. You can disagree with me. But uh, that's how I see things. Maybe it's too cynical. But, uh, again, I'm 56 years old in a couple weeks. And I've not seen anything to make me more optimistic. All right, guys, uh, that's it for this week. We appreciate the, the viewership. Um, thank you for sticking with me. Man, a lot of people reached out. I was like one day late with the video last week, and people were wondering if I fell off the planet uh, or, you know, gave up on uh, doing the video. So I appreciate the outreach. I appreciate the viewership. I appreciate the support. Thank you for that. Spring is in the air. Baseball season has started. Things are warming up. Green, It's everything's green again. So let's enjoy each day as we can and make the best of it. 
Uh, so that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.